Also, here, these words, again from the Word of God, Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is every man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bless us out of Zion, that we would see the good of Jerusalem. Father, would you surround us with your blessings through Christ Jesus, your Son, and the work of your Holy Spirit, that our lives may be reformed and conformed according to your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have never been much of a gardener. Uh, I have tried it a few times, tilling soil, planting seeds, watering and weeding, uh, but I've never had a whole lot of success producing any kind of fruit or crop uh, that I could enjoy. Uh, I'm sure someone who knows a whole lot more about gardening could critique my efforts and correct me in various ways. Uh, but of course, I'm really not all that concerned about it. In my gardening projects, there was never very much at stake. If my fruits and vegetables didn't make it, uh, I could just buy them at the store instead. But in the Christian family, there is a great deal at stake in how we garden, so to speak. The blessed man of Psalm 128 is something of a gardener. As a husband and father, his home is his garden. His wife is described as a fruitful vine, his children as olive plants, and his calling is to be a gardener. It's to tend to and nurture his family. Uh, in fact, that word husband originally meant one who tills the ground or one who plows the earth with a view to producing crops. The blessed man in Psalm 128 has invested himself in his family. He's pouring himself out on behalf of his family. He fertilizes God's family. He fertilizes his family with God's truth. He waters them with love. He lets the light of God's wisdom shine upon them. He pulls up weeds of, of sin and worldliness which would choke out their life. Sadly, uh, I don't think it's very hard to see that the blessed man of Psalm 128 is a rare breed in our day. Uh, the family is very much in need of reformation. And I think one of the best things we can do to encourage the reformation of the family in our own day is to look back to the reformation of the 16th century, to guiding lights like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Because the family was very much in need of reformation in their day, and they accomplished it. Uh, indeed, the family was in very bad shape before the Reformation in ways that are not identical to the crisis of the family in our day, uh, but certainly analogous to the various issues that we face. So, for example, in the 16th century, uh, the cloistered life in monasteries and convents actually ended up promoting widespread fornication and sexual abuse because people were being forced into a celibate lifestyle who didn't have a gift of self-control to go with that. Femininity was stolen from women as motherhood was looked down upon in comparison with a quote-unquote career 
in the convent, which was thought to be more spiritual and productive. Children were largely neglected by their parents. Against these kinds of corruptions, Calvin and Luther articulated a biblical vision of the family, much as we must do in our own day. It is crucial that the church in every age, in every generation, equip her members for family life, training men, women, and children in their various household responsibilities. In particular, I think the Reformers knew three key biblical truths that we have largely forgotten in our own culture, in our day. And I want us to look at them this morning. Three key truths. First, men and women are equal but different. Second, marriage is a symbolic covenant in which husband and wife complement one another. And third, children are gifts to be treasured and nurtured according to God's promise. I want us to look at each one of these truths, and we're going to especially look at Psalm 128, Ephesians 5 and 6 and Mark 10, because these are passages which really encompass all of family life, moving from marriage to parenting. And they're key passages that Luther and Calvin commented on. Well, first, this truth. Men and women are equal, but different. Now, in the 16th century, everyone knew that men and women were different, and uh, the argument had to be made for equality, for the equal worth of men and women. Uh, today, uh, we understand, I think we take for granted, that men and women are equal, but we have to make the argument that they are different. Let me read something to you. This is from an Anglican pastor named John Rogers. This was written just a few years ago. Uh, and basically what he is, he is doing is compiling research from uh, various uh, branches of science uh, to summarize the differences between men and women. This is what he says. Men and women differ biologically, psychologically, and relationally. Biologically, the male is, more, is physically more outwardly directed and the woman more inwardly. This is evidenced in a number of ways. The male bone structure is generally heavier and better shaped for addressing obstacles in the environment, whereas the woman's bone structure is weaker and shaped for the bearing of children. The male hand is stronger. Uh, the bodily form of the male is more rugged than the female. Women's bodies are clearly designed for bearing and nurturing children. The man's body is clearly designed for action in the world. Women are biologically oriented toward the family and men are oriented toward the world. That's biology. He goes on, he says, descriptive psychology studies the consciousness of human beings. Building upon these physical differences, different mental and emotional traits are found between men and women. Our sexuality or gender pervades our person. Men usually have more distance from their emotions and evidence a tendency to detach themselves from immediate reactions, whereas women tend to be more immediate and spontaneous in their responses. Uh, he's pointing out here how our brains as men and women are wired differently. He says in patterns of thought, men tend to analyze, objectify, dissociate, classify, and synthesize, whereas women are more prone to be intuitive, personally related, and to exercise empathy. Men tend to be more visual or spatial, while women are more verbal. Men are more goal-oriented, and women are more care and need-oriented. Women are more holistic in viewing a situation, and men tend to focus on some given aspect that will lead to a particular course of action. 
Women are more capable mentally of multitasking and nurture. Men are more inclined towards sequential planning, goal setting, and achieving. Women are more welcoming in orientation, whereas men are more aggressive and competitive. And then he goes on. He says, societies differ in many respects, but sociologists, so now we move from biology to psychology and now to sociology, sociologists have discerned a number of transcultural or common traits that characterize virtually every society that has ever been studied in the history of the human race. These common traits reflect and build upon the biological and psychological factors listed already. They are as follows. First, in virtually every society that's ever been studied, a sexual division of labor is found. So men and women have different jobs. Second, complementary roles in the communal and domestic spheres are present. Men bear primary responsibility for the larger community. Women bear primary responsibility for domestic management and the rearing of young children. Third, some form of female subordination to men exists. Men govern the larger communities while women exercise their responsibility for domestic management and the rearing of children under the oversight of the husband. And then fourth, cultural expressions of gender differences between men and women are evident. In other words, there are evident, obvious differences between men and women. You can recognize a man and you can recognize a woman. But then Rogers goes on, he says, sociologists have observed that in societies such as ours, where these traits are significantly weak or obscured, family life is weakened. And so then he goes on and draws this conclusion. He says, this data, drawn from the observation of God's creation, simply confirms what is clearly taught in Scripture. This should come as no surprise for the Creator and the Redeemer who authored both the book of nature and the book of Scripture is one and the same. He does not contradict himself. Now think about those paragraphs I just read. I know that was long. I apologize for that. But here's the thing. Many would call those paragraphs I just read today hate speech. To even say, to even assert that there are scientifically observed differences between men and women is considered hateful and offensive. But I would suggest to you that it is not hate speech. Uh, in fact, I would call these hate facts. Uh, hate facts, as in these are the facts, these are the scientific facts, the empirically observed facts. And lots of people today hate the facts. So they are hate Facts. Today, people have stopped believing in God, and so they have stopped believing in nature as well. We deny the designer, and so we act as if there is no design for marriage, for sex, for our bodies, for family. We are at war with the way God made the world. It's as if in our culture today, we want to treat sexuality as if it's Plato, that we can shape any which way we please. But of course, we simply can't. If we fight against God made the world, we're going to lose. Scripture is clear. I would say observation of the world around us is clear. God made man, male and female. And men and women are indeed different with different strengths and weaknesses, different roles and responsibilities. Men and women are made for each other. Men have their own kind of masculine glory. Women have their own kind of feminine glory, but they're not the same. And I don't think it's too hard to prove this. Uh, you know, I've already read you some scientific data, but just we see this all the time 
uh, in our day-to-day -day life. If I describe a movie as a chick flick, okay, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain movies that appeal to women. When it comes to movies, guys and girls tend to want to watch different kinds of movies. It's the same with magazines. If you pick up a women's magazine, which I don't recommend, but what are they typically about? They're typically about relationships in one way or another. That's the focus, relationships. What are guys' magazines about? They're about things like guns or cars or sports. See, men and women are oriented to one another differently. They're oriented to the world and to work differently. Men and women are not interchangeable pieces in a machine. Nor are the differences only skin deep. They go down to every cell in the body and indeed to the soul. You are male or female, masculine or feminine, all the way down to the very core of your being. Men and women are equal in worth, but are designed for different roles and functions. Now I recognize that sometimes some societies have been way too rigid in stereotyping the particular roles that men and women can fulfill. I don't think we need to fall into that trap. Uh, when we say this, that men and women have different roles or functions to play in God's world. They're equal but different. He's a dollar bill, she's a silver dollar. Same worth, different design. We have different bodies, different minds. Our minds are wired differently, different souls, different needs, different callings, different strengths and weaknesses. And this is what is, I think, important to note also. In Scripture, we find that God has made us male and female. God has made men and women different for a reason. And Jesus gets at this in Mark 10. People sometimes say, oh, Jesus had virtually nothing to say about the great sexual and gender issues of our day. Not true at all. Just look at his words there in Mark 10. Jesus says, God made them male and female so that for this reason... A man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why did God make man, male, and female? God made two sexual halves, so to speak, who form a whole, complementing one another and completing one another in marriage. And that really brings us to the second truth here I want us to examine. Marriage is a symbolic covenant between a man and a woman. And really, this is crystallized for us in the Ephesians 5 passage we read this morning from the Apostle Paul. God established marriage to symbolize the gospel. Marriage is patterned after Christ's relationship with the church. In the marriage covenant, the husband is to love his wife as Christ does the church, and the wife is to obey her husband as the church does Christ. And the deepest meaning of marriage is found here. It's found here in what marriage symbolizes and what it points to. John Calvin described it this way. He said, God honors the institution of marriage. Remember, Calvin was writing at a time when marriage was not honored. Marriage was looked down upon as, uh, as inferior to the celibate life. But Calvin says this, God honors the institution of marriage by making it an image of Christ's sacred union with the church. What greater blessing could God have pronounced on the dignity of marriage? This is the dignity of marriage. This is the meaning of marriage. It's found in what marriage symbolizes. It's clear in Scripture as well that marriage is a covenant. Christ has a covenant with his church. That's the word that Scripture uses. Marriage is a covenant. It's a binding promise. 
Uh, in fact, I pointed this out last week, but I want to mention it again. The reformers overhauled wedding customs as they existed. The, the, the whole marriage ceremony, wedding customs were in great disarray in the 16th century. The reformers overhauled people's ways of entering into the marriage relationship. It was especially the, the English reformer Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer who gave us the vows that we are so familiar with from our wedding liturgy. And of course those vows I think really are a beautiful distillation of what God has designed marriage to be all about. I'm going to recite those vows for you this morning. Uh, you've probably all been to enough weddings to, to, to have some familiarity with them. But I want you to think about this aspect of those vows. In those vows, the bride and groom say nothing, absolutely nothing, about their present feelings for one another. Rather, in those vows, they commit themselves to a course of faithful action in the future, whether they feel like it or not. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, husbands are and wives are committing themselves to one another, come what may, no matter how hard it gets. Love at its best certainly includes feelings of affection. But love acts in the best interest of the other, whether feelings are present or not. And that's something previous generations have understood, but in our feelings-obsessed culture, we can't really grasp. We need to understand, feelings don't determine reality. Feelings don't determine obligation. In marriage, you often have to practice love whether you feel like it or not. You know, in our day, people want to say that marriage is a social construct, that gender roles are socially constructed. Even manhood and womanhood are social constructs. But of course, anything that is socially constructed can be deconstructed. And it can become whatever you, you feel like you want it to be. How, whatever you feel like you want it to be, you can make it into that. But again, it's just not so. Marriage has an objective shape and structure to it. God invented marriage and He regulates it. He gave marriage a certain shape and definition. And He designed marriage to be a mirror reflecting the Christ-Church relationship. And He has assigned to husbands and wives their roles, or better we could say, their duties within the marriage covenant. Calvin says this, he says, Husbands should cherish their wives with no ordinary love. For the Apostle Paul holds out to husbands the example of Christ. Husbands bear Christ's image and are his representatives, so they must resemble him in how they discharge their duty. Calvin goes on, he says, Christ's example shows the strong affection which husbands ought to have for their wives. Let husbands imitate Christ in this, that he did not hesitate to die for his church. That's the kind of love and the kind of action husbands are called to. Christ-shaped love is sacrificial love. It's self-giving love. It's self-denying love. Calvin says, husbands are the Christ figures in the love story they share with their wives. The gospel is the script, and the husband is to play the part of Jesus in that script. He's the Christ figure. Calvin is saying to husbands, you should feel about your wife the same way Christ does about the church. You should treat her the way Christ treated the church. You should do for her as Christ did for the church. That is your pattern as a husband to imitate. That's your model, Christ himself. 
Yes, Calvin says God has given husbands authority over their wives, but the model for exercising this authority is found in Christ himself. And Calvin actually says that a man is a monster. That's the word he uses. A monster who does not show Christ-like affection and gentleness towards his wife in the way he exercises his authority. Calvin says that when a husband and wife play their respective roles in marriage, the sweetest harmony reigns. The sweetest harmony reigns and husband and wife, with one consent, cultivate a holy, friendly, and peaceful way of life. And of course, Calvin also warns of the strife that arises when we invert God's order of nature, the order of nature God has appointed. Let me tell you a little bit about Calvin himself and his own life. He married a woman named Idolette. Now, there's quite a story behind his marriage that I won't go into. It's, it's actually, I'd say, the stuff of romantic comedies for sure, uh, with the emphasis on the comic. Uh, trying to find John Calvin a wife took practically a whole search committee uh, looking all over Europe uh, to find just the right woman uh, who would be able to, uh, to be his wife. But when they finally found her, when Calvin married Idolette, they were happy together uh, for several years until her passing. They both were uh, ill, struggled with various sicknesses most of the time uh, in their married life. But this is what Calvin wrote about her after her passing. And I think you can feel his affection for her coming through. He says, truly, mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life. He says, my wife was my best friend, and now I've, I've lost her. He says, during her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. Or Luther actually is even um, puts this in a more colorful way. Uh, after Martin Luther married the runaway nun, Katie Von Bohr, another story which would probably make for a pretty good romantic comedy, uh, he cherished her so greatly uh, in their years together. Uh, he said this after he'd been married for a few years. He said, I would not trade my Katie for all of France or Venice. He says, God has given her to me and me to her. Uh, another place he writes to Katie and says, Katie, you are an empress. You're a queen because you have a God-fearing man who loves you. Uh, it's pretty obvious when you read about their interactions and, and read their letters and so forth. It's pretty obvious. Luther was crazy about Katie, and he was not shy about letting people know that. Uh, we saw this a little bit last week. Martin and Katie were a model of a joyful marriage where they served together, they engaged in mission and in ministry and in hospitality together. They joked and they laughed and played together. They built a married friendship together, a blending of eros, romantic love, and phylos, friendship love. Luther and Calvin both practiced what they preached in this area of life. They both deeply respected God's ordained structure for marriage. They were both exemplary husbands. And that's not to say that either one of them found marriage easy. It's not easy to have a good marriage. It takes work. And indeed, the most important daily work in a marriage is confessing sin when you've done wrong and forgiving sin when your spouse has done wrong. Confessing and forgiving sin. That's the daily work of marriage. But certainly that's easier said than done. Uh, I think newlyweds virtually always have that, that moment in the marriage where they find themselves thinking, surely marriage shouldn't be this hard. We have this tendency in our culture to think that if we just marry the right person, then it's going to be pretty easy after that. 
But the Duke ethicist Stanley Harawa says with a shot of realism, we always marry the wrong person. Now, it's not that you always marry the wrong person. The person you're married to is the right person. It's that you're not the right person. You're the wrong person. You need to change and transform. But Howard point, I think, is really important for us to catch. You never marry your soulmate because there's no such thing. Rather, you become soulmates over the course of a lifetime of loving and respecting each other through thick and thin. Or as one of the Puritans put it, Puritan pastor put it this way, to married couples, he said, you chose your love, now love your choice. It's really that simple. Imagine, though, if you didn't weed a garden for, you know, say a couple of months or even a couple of weeks, what would happen? It would be over. The weeds would overtake the, the, the plants that you, have, uh, that, that you have planted, and it'd be over. You're not going to get anything if you neglect your garden that way. You're not going to get any fruit. That's what happens when you don't deal with sin in your marriage through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Confession of sin is weeding the garden so the vine can thrive. And the key is to recognize that even though 99% of the time when there's a conflict in the marriage, 99% of the time both spouses are in the wrong in some way, you have to confess as if you were the only one at fault. Otherwise, you're still making excuses and justifying Yourself. If your marriage is to thrive, you cannot focus on the shortcomings and sins of your spouse. You have to focus on your own. You have to remember, there's only one person in the marriage you can really do something about, and that's yourself. The way God has designed marriage to work, the husband is the head. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. The husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of his church. What does headship mean? Headship especially means responsibility. It means that the man is the captain of the ship. And so everything that happens on board is his responsibility. Men, when you got married, your wife took your name. And you took your wife under your wing. You took responsibility for her. I think the problem today is with our sexual anarchy, we have lost touch with what real manhood is. Dude, I would say this is why feminism arose. Feminism largely arose because of abusive, overbearing men who misused their authority. And then the flip side of that is that feminism has produced wimpy, abdicating men who refuse to exercise any authority at all. Married men need to see that headship is inescapable. It means responsibility and it means authority. Headship really is husbandry. It is, an it is a form of authoritative stewardship. A man may be a good head or he may be a bad head of his household, but he can't help being the head. If he is a faithful head, he will use his authority to serve sacrificially. He will take responsibility for his wife and for his children, and thus he will manage his family well, cultivating fruitfulness, which is the goal. And again, how does a husband do this? How does he exercise headship in the right kind of way? Again, it's by loving as Christ loves. That's Paul's recipe. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. By loving them exclusively and permanently. A man whose eyes wander is not representing Christ faithfully. 
Husbands love their wives like Christ by leading them, providing for them, protecting them. Husbands ought to be the first to serve, the first to confess, the first to seek reconciliation. Husbands are commanded to love because love is hard for men to give. But also because it is exactly what a woman needs most. And of course, Paul in this same passage commands wives to respect their husbands. Why? Because respect is hard for women to give. But also because it's what a man needs most. Think of these gifts, love and respect. A man giving love to his wife. A a wife giving respect to her husband. Think of these as gifts, like Christmas gifts. The gift you give should match the needs and the desires of the recipient. See, if a man gives respect to his wife but fails to love her, it's like he got her a shotgun for Christmas. That doesn't work. That doesn't meet her deepest need, her deepest desire. What a woman desires most is a love from her husband that springs from a covenant commitment and thus gives her security. And what a man desires most from his wife is respect. Respect meaning she affirms his abilities and his achievements. In fact, let's let's talk about that for just a minute. We've talked about the husband a bit. Let me talk about what the wife is to do. We've seen what a husband's love looks like, at least a thumbnail sketch. What does it look like for a wife to give her husband the gift of respect? Well, again, I want to turn to the example of Martin and Katie, because I think Katie is a great model of this, a wife who respected her husband. She was certainly no pushover. We saw that last week. Uh, But she is a woman who greatly respected her husband. After Martin passed, after Martin died, this is what she wrote in a letter. She says, For who would not easily be troubled and saddened over such a precious man as my dear husband was? He served not just one city or a single country, but the entire world. See, she's praising his achievements, his accomplishments. This is what respect looks like. For that reason, I really am so sad that I can't tell anyone how full of sorrow my heart is. If I had a princedom or empire and lost it, I wouldn't have been as sad as now when our dear Lord has taken this dear and precious man from me, and not just from me, but from the whole world world. See, Katie was a respectful wife. But the thing is, you know, sometimes I think that, that that whole idea of respect and submission, people get the sense, well, that just means that the wife is supposed to be a doormat. And that's not the case at all. And that's not what you see with Katie Luther at all. This is how one historian describes their marriage relationship. You've seen her respect, uh, but, but take note of this as well, how she was actively engaged as his helper. Katie was not a mere bystander. She was an engaged and devoted partner to Luther and an active participant in the Reformation. Stubborn, opinionated, blunt, and often crass, sickly, prone to melancholy, and a classic workaholic, Martin Luther was not an easy man to live with. But he found the best possible partner in Katharina, a woman who deeply loved and respected him, yet also managed his volatile and difficult personality and offered him intellectual stimulation and companionship. Luther undoubtedly understood how challenging and difficult he was. Feisty and strong, courageous and smart, industrious and utterly devoted, Katharina was, in fact, the perfect match for Martin Luther, and he knew it. See, she was a helper truly fit for him, without whom he could not have accomplished the great things he did. 
Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, wives are to submit to their husbands. Some, you know, sometimes we take submission to mean the wife is a doormat. That's not right. But sometimes also we view it as just the kind of thing that comes into play when there's a disagreement and a decision has to be made and she's got to submit so he's got the tie-breaking authority. That's not what submission means either. Submission is not something that just arises when there's a decision and there's a disagreement. There's a decision that's got to be made and there's a disagreement. Submission for the wife is to be a way of life. It means service. It means blessing him. It means helping him reach his goals. It means that the wife is to lay her life down for him every day. Even as we've already seen, he's to lay his life down for her every day. Submission for the wife means putting your husband's needs first. And that, yes, that means even in some sense above the needs of the kids. It's interesting that neither Luther nor Calvin ever wrote a book on married life. You won't find a marriage manual written by either one of these great performers. They had a lot to say about marriage, but it's mainly scattered through their commentaries and their personal correspondence. But I think the reason you don't see any kind of a book or manual written specifically about married life is because Luther and Calvin did not believe that marriage required some special set of skills. As if there are skills for the Christian life as a single person and then a whole new set of virtues you have to learn when you get married. It's not that way at all. Rather, I think they saw it this way. The virtues that make for a good husband or a good wife are precisely those virtues that make for a good Christian in any life circumstance. To be a good spouse then simply requires being a good Christian. What is a good husband? A good Christian. What's a good wife? A good Christian. See, that, that I think is, is the point. In marriage, he is the head and she is the helper. And I think Luther and Calvin would have us understand it's not any easier to exercise authority properly than it is to submit to authority properly. But by the grace of God, husbands and wives can each fulfill their roles and thus symbolize the gospel. And so God's purpose, God's design for marriage is fulfilled. Finally, let's talk about children here for a few minutes. Here I can be brief. Uh, because in the fall, we are actually going to offer a Sunday school class on parenting uh, that will get into all the details that will take this down into the nooks and crannies that will push this into the corners of your life, how to be a faithful Christian parent. But what I want to do this morning is give you the big picture and a couple pieces of counsel that I think flow out of Luther and Calvin uh, as models for us. The great truth I think they rediscovered about children is that children are a gift Luther and Calvin recovered and proclaimed this truth. And it's a truth we've got to recover and proclaim in our day. In our day, children are not viewed as gifts. Did you know that there is no major... I just saw this the other day in an article about it. There is no major European leader right now, political leader, who has his or her own children. Now, all these European leaders, not a single one of the major leaders in Europe has a child of his or her own. Think about the implications of that. Or consider Bill Nye, who not too long ago, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, who said that people ought to be penalized for having too many kids. You know, I have no idea what Bill Nye would say about our congregation. <laughs> Probably someone is all locked up or something. In our day, children are viewed as a nuisance and as a burden. 
But God says they are blessings. Psalm 127, right before Psalm 128 we read this morning. Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord and a very great reward. Now you can ask a question about this. You can ask, how can children be gifts if they are sinners? Is God giving us a defective gift in some way? Well, it certainly is true that children are sinners. Scripture and, and, and reformational theology both emphasize this, that we inherit depravity. Your children are sinners. Your children may need violin lessons. They're going to need swim lessons, but they don't need sin lessons. They'll figure that out on their own. They are born sinners as children of Adam. But the children given to believers are also the children of God. And that's the blessing. They come with a promise attached. The promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17 where God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. Our children are blessings because they are blessed by God. And so when we bring our children into the life of the church through our faith in God's promises, through our prayers for them, through having them baptized, our children receive the same blessing the children in Mark chapter 10 received when they were brought to Jesus and He laid His hands on them. Calvin believed that cultures rise or fall according to how they treat children. He called children a treasure granted by God and urged parents to celebrate the singular kindness of God shown to them in their offspring. Now, in the day-to-day -day work of parenting, children don't always feel like blessings. They don't always feel like a singular kindness of God, a, a, a treasure. But it is indeed the truth. Interestingly, Luther and Calvin both had a hard time with children. Remember that Luther's marriage was scandalous. He had a former monk marrying a, a former nun. Uh, he said when uh, he got married, he said, With my marriage I have made angels laugh and devils weep. When Katie got pregnant for the first time, there were all kinds of speculations based on a medieval prophecy of some sort that, uh, that a monk and a nun would marry and give birth to the Antichrist. And people thought, oh, well, this must be it. A monk and a nun have married. There were actually rumors that, uh, that her baby was going to be a two-headed monster. Crazy stuff, right? But they were able to, to, to fight off those speculations and ignore the malicious gossip and actually grow their family to six children in all. They lost two of those children in childhood, one in infancy, another as a teenager. But God blessed them with children. Calvin and Idolette faced a much tougher situation. Their only child died in infancy, leaving them childless, which was one of the great pains of Calvin's life and something his enemies used against him. But it's interesting that Luther and Calvin, even though their experiences were very, very different, they give very similar counsel when it comes to raising children. And I can boil down everything I have learned from Martin Luther and John Calvin about parenting. You know, here's everything Luther and Calvin taught me about parenting. I can boil it down to one sentence. The reformers can't teach you, uh, you know, how to manage your kids' social media accounts. Uh, they can't tell you what to do with your kids' Xbox. They didn't deal with those kinds of things. But they can tell you what is the most important thing of all, and it's simply this. Parent in faith. Trust God with your children. Trust God's promises to and about your children. 
Luther and Calvin both emphasize God's promises over any particular parental techniques. Oh, sure, there are techniques. There are methods. You have to teach your children. You have to teach them well. As Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 emphasize, we've got to be nurturing our children in God's truth at all times, teaching them God's Word and teaching them how to look at all of life in light of God's Word. And Luther and Calvin both wrote catechisms for parents to use with their children. And yes, certainly Luther and Calvin would say, you have to discipline your children. And they both talk about the rod quite a bit, but they also warn against parents being overly harsh in discipline. Uh, Calvin warns parents to not forget gentleness and forbearance when they correct and restrain their children. Luther and Calvin are not afraid to talk about the techniques and the methods involved in parenting. But the big thing they focus on again and again and again is that in parenting, you have to start and finish with God's promises. You ever think about this? The first command in the Bible is to have children, to be fruitful and multiply. And the first promise revealed in Scripture is a promise about children, about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Luther and Calvin would say, make God's promises the bedrock of your parenting. You know, we all want our children to be loyal to us and especially loyal to our God and to his church. Calvin and Luther both emphasized that the children of God's people are to be baptized in infancy into the covenant, into Christ and into the body of Christ, which is his church. Calvin says we should offer our children to God for in baptism he gives them a place among his people, among his family. He takes them into his household as members of his church. And so if you ask questions like this, can you assure your children that God is their father? Can they pray the Lord's Prayer, our father? Luther and Calvin would say yes. Can you assure them that Jesus loves them? Can they sing Jesus loves me and mean it? Luther and Calvin would say yes. Can you assure them that their prayers will be heard? That their sins are forgiven? Yes. Yes, they would say. Can you tell your children to obey because God has given them His Holy Spirit to help them? Yes. And we need to remind our children of this often. That they've been united to Christ in baptism and have been given His Holy Spirit. We need to remind our children of the gospel often because we all have gospel amnesia. We tend to forget the gospel and we need reminders. Should you be helping your children learn to participate in worship as Christians? And indeed because they are Christians, even though it's a hard and long process. Yes, Luther and Calvin would say, because they are part of the people of God. They're part of us, this community. We're to start with faith in the promises of God and we're to never give up faith in the promises of God as we seek to raise our children. See, when we raise our children, we are discipling them. We are training them for faithfulness so they will be loyal to the God who has baptized them. Now, how your children turn out, that's ultimately dependent on God's sovereignty. And so we need to be careful about trying to explain things that are beyond us. There is no method or technique you can follow that will absolutely guarantee faithful children. The farmer can till the soil, he can plant the seed, he can weed and feed, but God must give the increase. God must give the fruit. But parents who claim God's promises can be assured of this. When you trust God's 
When you trust God's promises, when you trust your children, when you entrust them to God, when you believe God's promises about your children, when you trust God for and with and about your children, your parental works will not be driven by anxiety or by anger or by fear, but all your parental works will be the fruit of that faith you have in the promises of God. Knowing God's promises allow you to be patient, to keep in view the big picture, to, again, be controlled by faith, not fear. And so your hope in God's promises for your children should always outweigh your fear of rebellion. That's really the central thing that Luther and Calvin emphasize again and again and again. Trust in the promises of God to and about your children. Rest in those promises. But there's one other thing that I think comes out, and this especially comes out from Luther's example. Luther really modeled this, and I think this is the other thing that you see. To be a faithful parent, what do you need to do? You need to keep your children close. You need to cultivate a close relationship with them. Okay, that sounds very simple, but think through some of the implications. This means being kind to your children. You know, sometimes we're kinder to strangers than we are to our own flesh and blood. Okay, remember the words of Dr. Seuss, a person's a person no matter how small. Children are people. They're image bearers. They ought to be treated with dignity and with respect at all times. So when you speak to them, even when you have to correct them, treat them with respect. When you discipline them, perhaps especially when you discipline them, treat them with dignity and respect. As your kids get older especially, be a safe space for your kids to come and tell you what's going on in their lives, even their deepest struggles. Get to know your kids as people and let them get to know you. Appreciate them for who God has made them to be. Appreciate their personality types and their interests, even if they're very different from yours. Love your children as your neighbors in Christ Jesus. Focus just as much on a strong relationship with your kids as you do on correct behavior from your kids. And I think probably the best picture of this we have of all is Luther's dinner table. Because it's really the picture of Psalm 128. Psalm 128, the blessed man is seated around the dinner table with his wife and his children. And they're feasting together. That's the picture you have. That's kind of the pinnacle of the biblical vision of the family. But remember what we said last week about Luther's table talk. For Luther, the Reformation happened around the dinner table as much as anywhere else. Picture that dinner table the, the, in, in, in the Luther's home. You have Luther and his wife and his kids. You have the foster kids they've taken in at the table with them. You've got upwards of 40 students boarding with them at any given time who are gathered around that table to share life, to share wisdom, to share songs, to share joys and sorrows, to grow together as they feast together. That kind of family life gathered around the table, enjoying one another, enjoying God's gifts. That kind of family life is a little picture of heaven on earth. It is the blessing of God. And it's what God calls us to. Let's put it together. Father, we pray that in this congregation You would raise up many, many blessed men who fear You, 
whose wives are like fruitful vines in the heart of their homes, whose children are like fruitful olive plants gathered around the table. For this we know is your blessing. May we see this blessing. May we experience this blessing in our homes. Would you pour out your grace upon us? Would you shower us with your mercy that these things might be so? That the family might be reformed according to your word, beginning right here with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.